This is Damon Albarn, and you're listening to Hallelujah Monkeys, the number one gorillas podcast in the world. Hello, and welcome to Hallelujah Monkeys for early March 2018. My name is Dylan Flynn. My name is Trevor Ickrath. Back once again, Dylan. Yeah, what kind of... This is the the opening show stuff, which is a little extra awkward, because I never know what kind of small talk to make at a funeral. What are you supposed to do? Well, as we'll learn later in the show, there are many different ways you can behave at a funeral. So we'll just see how this one ends up going, I guess. That's true. Yeah, there's the there's the the... A lot of different cultures and approaches to to seeing people off. I think uh, a tradition that I believe originates with the Native Americans is to uh, see somebody off to the next world by talking about gorillas news. Is that that's something I've read before, right? We'll definitely do that. But first, let's remind everybody that now is a great time to donate to our Patreon and get exclusive access to our patreon key monkeys club bonus episodes hell yeah because we just this week uh we posted the the second episode which is our review of black holes and revelations by muse and i gotta say and that was a lot of fun so good I, I i think it's one of the best things you and i have done together and i'd love more people to hear it something that i forgot to bring up during that episode which i want to rectify now and uh i was reminded of this because you chose to include a clip from a preview of the movie i think crazy stupid love (laughs) yeah i did that's true featuring a muse song in it uh during which one of the actresses in the film says that they went to go see uh the latest twilight movie and it was so bad i forgot to mention in the episode but muse is actually twilight author stephanie meyer's favorite band and they get like an exclusive shout out in the uh thank you sections of those books Good to know. So I I hope Stephanie Meyer saw that and was kind of happy. Or I don't know, does Stephanie Meyer deserve to be happy? Uh, well, you know, I guess in the sense that we're all we're all siblings of this earth, and maybe sometimes we do terrible things like write Twilight novels, but that doesn't mean we're bad people. Um, we've got a we've got a lot of terrible things and bad people to talk about (laughs) on this episode, though. So (laughs) now let's properly get into that news let's get to that gorilla's news trevor i didn't think this was gonna happen but gorillas are now officially the best british group according to the brit awards the lads did it they fucking did it they they took home one of these awards they beat out London Grammar, yes, Royal Blood, right, Wolf Alice, right, and the XX to take home the best British group at the Brit Awards a couple nights ago. Way to go, boys! Uh, this is a kind of a momentous thing because we heard from one Murdoch Nichols, and I think this could be the first time we've heard from Murdoch properly since maybe that Gorillas Radio takeover at the end of last year. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, what's what's that guy been up to? I wonder. I don't know. Let's let's hear from him. Sure. Sorry my bandmates can't be with me. I'm detained by your Madge. Not the American Madge, our Brit Madge. Um, thanks to all the fab artists, management, Phil the driver, Keith, my Zumba teacher, Sid the Psycho Smith, my friend Hacksaw, Harry, Jack the Hat, Cyrus the Virus, Big Balls McGinnis, no Balls McGinnis, Long Lenny. Now, <laughs> that to me, Trevor, smacks of Jamie Hewlett saying, listen, we never win these things, so, so just toss something off. <laughs> 
Right. They it, it doesn't really seem like they were expecting the victory here. No. Uh, in fact, maybe this is more evidence of that. So the enemy was was very excited about uh, what happened right after this when when Damon and I think who else is there? Jenny Beth, Lil Sims, Drom was Drom there. I definitely recognize Drom. Yeah, that was interesting. Maybe also Remy Kabaka. They all took to the stage, and then Damon he just like gets his elbows up on the podium. <laughs> He was very drunk. He's very clearly, clearly drunk. wasted. And, the way uh, he and... saunters up to the stage and gives like the little like hands folded bow halfway up there too is just peak Auburn, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, let's hear a little bit of that head turning speech from Damon, huh? I've got one thing to say. And it's about this country. This country is... Believe it or not, quite a small little thing, right? But it's full of, it's a lovely place. And it's part of a, a beautiful world. But uh, what I want to say is don't let it become isolated. Don't let yourselves become uh, cut off, you know. Considering our size, we, we do incredible things in music. You know what I mean? We've got a real spirit and a real soul. And uh, don't let politics get in the way of all of that shit, all right? Okay, okay so immediately after that, Lil Sims tried to add to the, like a, a couple of comments, and they, it was so harsh, they just dropped the house lights on her. But they brought them back up and did allow her to speak. I yeah, believe, they right? did. They did. She got to talk about how great it was working with gorillas and how much it feels like a family. And then she passed the mic to Jenny Beth, who also said a couple words. Yeah, uh, but you know, obviously, everybody, <laughs> everybody was maneuvering uh, around the wake left by <laughs> the the wild cigarette boat that is David Alvard. It was nice seeing Jamie up there as well. I really appreciated that he got to share that moment with them despite not really being part of the band there were some good faces happening behind david too if you just kind of like watch that clip if you go watch that clip it's very good it's definitely worth looking up yeah was that a sneak peek of the good the bad and the queen part two <laughs> brexit boogaloo was that maybe he was quoting some lyrics right he's hyping us up for it for sure i can't yeah, wait absolutely can't wait. Congratulations, Gorillaz. Congratulations, Damon. Congratulations to the whole Gorillaz family. This is a, a big moment. They never win these things, and I'm proud of our boys and our girls. You never know what England thinks about Damon Albarn at any given moment. You know, it's like sometimes sometimes they're like, oh, he's for the Americans, and sometimes they're like, oh, he's one of us, you know? A British award for Damon's American band. <laughs> you want to get into uh, the next segment? Yeah, let's, uh, let's check in with our listeners and... Cut to Hallelujah voicemails. And all I want to hear is the message beep. Remember that you can leave us a discussion question or just whatever's on your mind if you give us a call at 585-666-1233. Let's hear this week's voicemail, Trevor. Beep. Hey, this is Gwen from Novato, California. And uh, my discussion question is... (laughs) Is there any gorilla song that you think would have benefited from not having a feature? You guys are the best. Love you guys. Bye. Really good question. This one had me, you know, going back through all the songs. And what I realized is there are surprisingly few gorillas collaborators that I would cut out of the picture. I had a real hard time 
choosing which one I would ditch if I had to. This is exactly my experience, too. And I was so close to just saying, no, I, there's not one. I want all. I want everybody here. I have two answers. I think one is kind of a cheat. Yeah, I think I think one of mine's kind of a cheat too. Uh, so how about I go first, and we'll see if we have the same one. Go ahead. Yeah. I thought kick kick Gruff Reese off of a uh, uh, super fast jellyfish. He's just he's kind of doing a Damon impression anyway, right? Dylan, I agree. <laughs> yes. However, the question the question is phrased in a specific way that says. Uh, do you think there's a song that would benefit from not having a feature? Not having a feature, so then you'd still have right. If you kick Gruff off that one, you still have that De La Soul feature. So, like after after like to answer the question from this perspective, I had to go not just to the B sides, but to like a very rare track that we discussed during our uh, roulette episodes to find one that I think would benefit from having no other additional guests on it whatsoever. Oh, what'd you pull out? That song is. Dub Dumb. Dub Dumb, which has that sweetie Irie skanking section that you're not necessarily uh, uh, over the moon about. That makes sense. It's okay. It's kind of fun, but I don't love it. And I think if you take it out, I think I even mentioned on those episodes, if you uh, if you take out that feature, it kind of slots it into a nice like third installment in a trilogy of like weird instrumental tracks that show up in phase one. The first two being double bass and film music that that makes sense to me and and i think sweetie could could definitely stand to go i think maybe some people would be listening to this and thinking well who who's on a gorilla song that didn't do a whole lot that maybe if you take them out you wouldn't notice it and and maybe some of you are tempted uh, to to throw out the title of a much uh, of a controversial much maligned plastic beach album cut but i'll tell you if uh, if Marky e. Smith wasn't on Glitter Freeze, we wouldn't be here today. So, uh, are you ready to get into that roundtable, Dylan? It feels like the last month of my life has been building up to this roundtable. So, yeah, let's get to it. All those that mind and title themselves shall feel the wrath of my bombast. And Lloyd Cole's brain and face is made out of cow pats. We all know that. Here it is, an instrumental track. So peeking behind the screen a little bit, the, the, the fact that the record date like kind of kept getting pushed back for this episode, Trevor, made uh, this a more and more kind of exciting episode. The more rounded uh, my notes became and the more kooky ideas I had to uh, to share. Uh, so so what do you think? Do we uh, do we have a lot to say about the fall? Do you think that we're going to agree about the fall? What's going to happen today? I think we're probably going to come down on the same side of things. We should say that we're talking about the fall in honor of uh, frontman Marky e. Smith's passing. Which we now know was that was due to a terminal battle with lung and kidney cancer, uh, his family came out and said. Despite that, he never let it stop him. He was a recording artist right up until the very end. He, was a, he had an incredible amount of work ethic in spite of his uh, illness. He put out what was it somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 albums with this band a new album almost every year of his life until he died yeah he was a pretty intense uh, dude pretty prolific dude uh maybe a good place to start here actually before we even talk about what the fall is who marky e. smith is it's just like 
what specifically was your like history of trying to figure the fallout? What did you think about this band, like starting before you even launched into studying this album? Well, as a relatively uncool person, Gorillaz was my introduction to Marky Smith as an artist. I'd never heard of The Fall before Plastic Beach came out. I'd never heard of Marky Smith, so that was my that was the first time I'd ever encountered this guy. And, you know, in my travels afterwards, I had occasionally looked into trying to get into The Fall, maybe, whenever I would go through post-punk phases or anything like that. But they're a really difficult group to get into, especially if you don't really have somebody to introduce them to you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I did have someone introduce me to the fall, as a matter of fact. So in between phases two and three, I mentioned before, I was, I spent a, a few months living in, in England and abroad. And one of my flatmates was a kind of a, a terminally depressed alcoholic man who was spinning his wheels, uh, had a lot of opinions about things, but wasn't quite sure what to do with his life, which I think is, like, really the sweet spot for this band. <laughs> and, Pretty much, yeah. And he was the one who said, listen, you got to get into the fall. you got to get into the fall. I'll say his name is Paul Stanway. I'm actually still kind of buddies with him. He's doing pretty well now. Um, nice. My experience uh, with the fall, though, was I'd cue an album up. I'd get about halfway into it. And I just think, ah, I don't have, I don't have time to figure this fucking thing out. That was like, they're tough, man. They are like nigh on impenetrable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like if you've never heard a fall song, it's like really think like really discordant, messy, tuneless, lo-fi punk music with some half drunk, half high guy just <laughs> shouting non sequiturs and anecdotes and phrases over it, like. Not singing, just kind of yelling as if from the back of a bar. Well, that's a good tee up to talk about Marky Smith in general. Should we just talk about Mark for a bit here? Before we talk about the album we're going to be talking about today, uh, 1985's This Nation's Saving Grace. And before we even talk about, you know, the fall as a band, let's start with Mark. In the opening moment of the 2005 documentary, The Wonderful and Frightening World of Marky Smith, which I believe we both watched. I don't know that it helped, but I did like it. Well, we'll talk about it. In the opening moments of uh, this documentary, Marky Smith is described by various people who know him and who have worked with him as attitude personified, an inspirational character, an awkward git, mystifying, erratic, not a nice guy, and absolutely distinct. But my favorite description of him probably comes from this great interview piece I read this week titled... Life Lessons, Marky Smith on Bullying, the Occult, and Why Stalin Had the Right Idea. Oh, that's a great article. I read that too. (laughs) Written by Robert Chalmers, who describes Marky Smith as a man who believes that the pen is mightier than the sword, but has not always had a pen to hand. Yes, absolutely. And I think think an important thing to remember is that there are many Marky Smiths. And one, one Marky Smith is the one who you get in interviews. He's his own creature. Uh, then there's the one on Fall Records, distinct from that first one. Then there's the one that the people who know him personally know, who is also a, a distinct creature from those first two. And I think that something that might come up a lot today is the concept of being chaotic evil. I think all three of those Marky Smiths are their own take on the, <laughs> on the chaotic evil 
alignment. I'll absolutely agree with you. Marky Smith contains multitudes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know what was embarrassing to me, Trevor? It was late in this process before I realized that Marky Smith was real-life Murdoch Nichols. Um, like, I got deep into this before I started to connect that. And specifically, interview Marky Smith is Murdoch Nichols. Um, and in fact, to to kind of illustrate that to you... I picked a couple of my favorite Marky Smith interview quotes uh, that I that I think are are very very Murdochy in particular. Uh, and to kind of drive the point home, I actually reached out to Discord user It's a Me Wario. Find him on YouTube, uh, who does a pretty mean Murdoch Nichols impression and got some line reading. So let's check a couple of these out. Oh my gosh! You ready? Please, yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Those film people wanted that bloke who played Johnny Cash to play me. It's fucking ridiculous, wasn't it? They may as well have gotten the bloke who plays Batman. Get the guy at a fight club. He'd make a great me. Very Murdoch. Very Murdoch. Very Murdoch. Oh my gosh. Are there more? I got one more. Here we go. We were playing a festival in Dublin the other week, and there was this other group, like, warming up in the next sort of challenge, and they were terrible. I said, shut them cunts up. And they were still warming up, so I threw a bottle at them. The band says, that's the Sons of Mumford, or something. They're number five in the charts. I thought they were a load of retarded Irish folk singers. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a me, Wario. Really knocked it out of the park. But but that was that was definitely one of my moments with Marky Smith this week, of many, where I was like, ooh, I, I know this guy a little bit better now that I've sort of connected these dots. Uh, I love this guy, but I, I should say that the last week, the last couple of weeks, Trevor, I don't think I can say that they've turned me into a fall fan. Um, the only, the only reason being, and I love Marky Smith and I really love this album that we're about to start talking about, but I think that that bar is very high. I think that the fall is a band where 20 hours into investigating them, there's going to be a call to adventure where you must now decide, am I joining the cult of Marky Smith? Is the fall now going to be my favorite band? Or do I respectfully let that train sort of pass me by and and look on as it rides off into the sunset with admiration? And that's essentially where I ended up uh, on, on Marky Smith and the fall at the end of this week. Before you go any further, I want to build on that and say that I definitely agree that that is a quintessential experience that comes with kind of getting into the fall. And I think if you're anything like me, and I know you are, Dylan, you hear that call at a very specific place. Sure. And that place is the annotated fall. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Did you also fall into this rabbit hole with me this week? Of course. Of course. <laughs> Great. Great. The annotated fall is a different reality. It's a different plane. Well, it's an offshoot of the it's it's an offshoot of of this 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 web forum uh called the Fall Online Forum, which is this really really active uh um, hub for a subspecies of human being known as fans of the fall. <laughs> they really are. There's no bullying here. They really are lovely. They're they're they these... are a great group of people, and I want to give a special thanks to them. 
if not for the people of the Annotated Fall and all the hard work they've put in over the years, I don't think this episode would be possible. No, I completely agree. We would have just been scratching our heads through the whole thing. And I want to especially highlight a couple of users who I thought really shined a light and also were just beautiful characters to to I want to shout out BZ FGT and also Danny Mo who are like very active on the annotated fall those guys are great love those guys the work Danny noted Danny knows crusade about uh, <laughs> amazing. about paintwork <laughs> amazing or how about when BZ FGT just like casually drops the knowledge that he uses a dictation pedal to like double check his <laughs> lyrical transcripts. These people are great. I love them. And this is so active. Like I so recommend that you respectfully, kindly go take a peek in on the Fall Online forum and the Annotated Fall and like get to know these characters. I have a few quotes from the Annotated Fall that I'll be dropping throughout this episode, as a matter of fact. <laughs> me, me too, yeah. So just to give you a glimpse of what the site is like, one that I think offers like a good picture of it at both its best and its worst. Uh, there's a string of comments under Spoilt Victorian Child where right. after a long argument about the correct lyrics, uh, that guy we mentioned earlier, BZFGT, posts a nice message thanking another member, Robert, for all the contributions he's added to the site. And Robert returns the compliment telling BZFGT that his efforts are heroic and the analysis here makes for endlessly enjoyable reading Aww. to which bzfgt responds with thank you robert and as you know firsthand it is not only my efforts that go into this this cordial exchange is like immediately followed by a third member ronnie walker dunn butting in with your ears are all full of tatties <laughs> whatever those are they're great but yeah, the fall is like the fall is a band that requires a ridiculous amount of homework to get into, and I definitely wouldn't have been able to get into them to the extent that I did without the annotated fall. They are doing a lot of that work for me, and now that we've established that as a kind of place that we're going to keep returning to throughout this episode, I'll just I'll I'll say it: you and I were both there. We both heard the call. I think you let that train pass you by. Dylan, I jumped on. Oh my God, you're one of them now. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> after spending, I, I started preparing for this episode back in early February. And after spending so much time with this album and this band, I can definitely say The Fall are one of my favorite groups. And This Nation Saving Grace is like somewhere within my top 50 albums now for sure. Well, it's a great album. And I and I hope that, that I can shine some light on some things for you as we go through it too. And, and I know that you'll be shining a lot of light on it for me. Right. But before we talk about the album, let's talk about the fall at this point in time. Because yeah, because famously, what's the famous quote? The really famous quote where, where Marky Smith described it. He said, if it's, if it's me and your grand on the bongos, it's the fall. <laughs> He's the main character here, but there have been a lot of bit players. So we're going to talk about the ones that show up on this album. Sure. Uh, should we? Oh, a little bit outside of the parameters of the lineup for this album, we should shout out John Leckie, a very, a very important uh, British producer who actually worked with the with Muse, who we talked about on our on our bonus episode recently, and uh, and produced this Nation Saving Grace. And there's definitely some very lucky moments on this record as well. Right, but let's talk about the people who played the instruments on it and discuss the fall of 1985. What really went on there? We only have this excerpt. <laughs>
So over the group's 42-year existence, like we said, it's featured a revolving doors of more members than anyone's really been able to keep track of, although it's estimated to be somewhere around like 60 people, a good chunk of whom were fired by Marky Smith, or as I'm going to start referring to him, because this is how I've gathered fall fans refer to him, MES. Yeah, MES. Uh... Like I never see, I never see it shortened to Mark. No. I never see it shortened to Smith. It's always MES. MES is what, how they type it out. Yeah. So a lot of fall members. Fortunately for us, most of the people who played on this nation's Saving Grace had been in the band for quite some time. So I thought we'd go through the group members uh, by order in which they joined. Yeah. First, I want to talk about uh, the band's drummer at this point, Carl Burns. Now, correct correct me if I'm wrong, Trevor, but this is kind of an important album because up until this point, The Fall were kind of really known, especially in a live sense, as a two-drummer band. We'll talk about it, yeah. Okay. So Carl was the band's second drummer, but for all intents and purposes, he was kind of their first because their actual first drummer apparently only lasted for one show. And for decades, apparently, nobody could ever remember what his name was. <laughs> the Pete Best of The Fall? Pretty much. <laughs> Carl's membership in the band is kind of more complicated than any other member. While several musicians have like rejoined the group after previously leaving or being fired, Carl was reportedly rehired a record nine times. Great. He originally joined in 1977, left for a few years in 1979, and then came back in 1981. And like you mentioned, from 1981 to 1984, The Fall had two drummers. Yeah. After Carl left in 1979, he was replaced by a guy named Mike Lee, who left the band after only a year and was replaced by Paul Hanley, their then-bassist's little brother, who joined in 1980 when he was just 16 and still in school. A year after that, Carl rejoined the group initially as a temporary live replacement for Steve Hanley, who was unable to join the band for a tour in the U.S. after being denied a visa for being too young to play 21 and over clubs in America. Right. After the tour, Carl stayed on as the second drummer until Paul Hanley left in 1984, leaving Carl as the band's only drummer for this album. And it was a, I think that there was a lot of kind of fear in the cult of the fall at that time that the two drummer thing was so central to their sound, you know? I also want to point out that right at this time, Trevor, famously Marky e. Smith fired their touring sound man because he ordered a salad while they were out to lunch together. <laughs> That's one of the most famous instances of a member of the fall being fired, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Continue. So uh, Carl stayed in the band until 1986 when he got into an argument with MES and left to be replaced by Simon Wollstonecraft. Um, and after his exit, Carl briefly collaborated with former founding member of the fall, Martin Brahma, under the name Thirst. Uh, but after that, he quit music for several years and became a motorcycle courier. Wow. However, he made an unexpected return to the fall in 1993 to play alongside the other guy, Simon, in a second two-drummer lineup. Oh, cool. Until Simon left in 1997. Mid-90s fall seems like an interesting time. I haven't investigated it, but I, I know a little bit about it, and it seems like an interesting time to pick up with this band. Just a few more things about Carl. According to the 2008 book, The Fallen by David Simpson, which... MES reportedly hates, of course. Uh, yeah. Carl's repeated departures from the group were due primarily to his open resistance to MES's kind of like unorthodox leadership. Sure. Because it sounds like being in the fall was kind of hell. Yeah, well... To coax musicians into performing as he wanted them to, MES was notorious for like using a bunch of manipulative molding methods. Like he would insult people. He would, uh, he would sometimes give them the silent treatment, I read. And he would even, like, jostle and physically 
like mess with them on stage. I've always been interested, Trevor, in bands that uh, that include a frontman who doesn't play an instrument, um, because the feeling is always like, well, then they must really be bringing something to the table here that makes them worth organizing behind, you know, like, uh, and I really have come to see the fall, at least in the This Nation Saving Grace era that we're looking at, as like this really tight, well-organized post-punk outfit that is under the control of a cult leader. (laughs) A cult leader is a great way to put it. That or a dictator. Sure, a dictator. There's There's just a... A serious amount of brainwashing here. Do you have more lineup to talk about? I do. I've got a lot more lineup to talk about. I, <laughs> okay, well, let's go, buddy. Only only a few more things about the drummer. He was apparently the, like, when Mark would bring bring the hammer down on the band, he was apparently the guy who would always stand up to him. And this kind of climaxed on stage during this notorious New York City concert in 1998 when Carl attacked MES on stage after he repeatedly and deliberately knocked one of his cymbal stands to the ground. That sparked an onstage fight involving multiple members of the band, and it ended with three members quitting the group for good and MES being arrested for assaulting his then-girlfriend and fall keyboardist, Julian Nagel, who would continue performing with the fall until 2001. You know, that actually really reminds me of this of this cult. The, the, it's like the progenitors of the... Of the, the Ten Commandments or something like that, where this dude was was so abusive to all of his members, but then when he finally like performed surgery on one member and cut her arm off, like all these people were finally like, "Fuck it, this is enough," and then they quit. Very similar, very similar. Totally. There's always that breaking point. Yeah, you know? definitely. So that's that's their drummer, Carl Burns. <laughs> yep. Check. Who's next? On bass, we got Steve Hanley, who joined in 1979. Okay. And uh, the relationship between him and MES is a little better. He's kind of one of the few members for whom MES seemed to have a genuine fondness. In an interview, uh, he once called Steve the most original aspect of the fall, saying, I've never heard a bass player like him. I don't have to tell him what to play. He just knows. He is the fall sound. There's some good smart bass lines on this record. It's a really good bass album. And a really good bass sound. Like the... Tone wise, you really can't you can't beat it. The really good bass sound. Steve knew his tones. Um, the year before this Nation Saving Grace came out, Steve actually left the group for four months on paternity leave. And when he came back to record, MES was so happy that he had a message printed on the runout groove on the record's A side, reading "S Hanley!" Exclamation point. He's back. <laughs> Lovely. But despite how good this relationship was, Hanley also left the band following that on stage fight in '98. Marky Smith later regretted the whole, all the bad blood and asked uh, both Steve and Carl to come back, but they declined the re-invitation to the group. Tragic, but you see, this is how it works. This is how it works. You lash out and control and lash out and control, and eventually you just you, you poison people. They won't come back to you. Yep, yep. Speaking of people who won't come back, this guy also uh, would leave the band eventually. Craig Scanlon, uh, the guitarist, he joined in 1979 around the same time as Steve Hanley. And uh, he was the band's second guitarist, replacing founding member Martin Bram. 
And I think on this record, when you're hearing um, a lot of like a, a rhythm and that sort of thing, this is usually this guy. Craig was one of the man's most longstanding members. He lasted 16 years from 1979 to 1995. And during his time with the band, he played on 17 albums and co-wrote over 120 songs, more than any other member who passed through the group. Uh, but despite his surname being spelled Scanlon with an O, he was wrongly credited as Greg Scanlan with an A for his first five years with the band. <laughs> Why wouldn't he just point that out? I guess that's the that's a really good glimpse into the environment surrounding the fall. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Honey, honey, just tell him. No, I sh- I can't. I can't. <laughs> So in addition to these almost founding members, uh, the band's lineup for This Nation's Saving Grace includes two more recent recruits, the first of whom is definitely worth talking about at length. We've got guitarist and songwriter Bricks Smith. I got a lot to say about Bricks, Trevor, but that's mostly going to come later. Suffice it to say, I'm about a quarter of the way through her autobiography right now. Uh, Great. The Rise, The Fall, and The Rise uh, by Bricks Smith, which I strongly recommend. She's a very interesting character and a very central character to this album in particular. She's a psychologist's daughter from Los Angeles who met MES in Chicago in 1983 and would go on to play in the band for six years until her departure in 1989 despite only playing with the group for a short while she's kind of the second most important member of the band not only is she widely credited falsely mes asserts with uh one inspiring the band to dress better and two co-writing the singles that actually kind of managed to graze the british charts she was also during her time in the band marky smith's wife Correct, and uh, was 21 when, when she met him and was already a huge fan. Had had kind of taken the whole hook, line, and sinker for sure before she even met Marky Smith. In that interview with Robert Chalmers that we both read, one of my favorite parts uh, was Chalmers describing the way MES says Brick's name in the kind of tone a dictator might use when mentioning the name of some catastrophic military defeat. Yeah, Definitely. (laughs) And when he realizes that Chalmers is about to first bring her up, he cuts him off before Chalmers can even say her name, referring to Bricks as the name that must not be uttered. Yeah, Bricks is a very important character, uh, especially for for a lot of these songs. So I I look forward to talking more about her as we we move move forward here. Rounding out the lineup for This Nation's Saving Grace is a multi-instrumentalist sign. Rogers. Now, that, this guy's a secret weapon. Secret weapon, in my opinion, Trevor. Secret weapon. He joined the group shortly before the album was recorded and plays keyboards, drum machines, guitars, and bass. And he'd stay with the group until 1988, appearing on subsequent releases, Ben Sinister and The Franz Experiment. A lot of the group's members play several instruments, though. Actually, like they're all contributing little things here and there. In fact, uh, MES even plays violin on one of the later tracks on the album himself. Yes, but when you're listening to this record and you're thinking, fuck, that's a cool little texture, it's oftentimes this dude. He was, he was a, a, I think, a secret weapon to this album's sound and, a, and does some really, really cool shit. And, and uh, yeah, yeah. So that's it. That's our players, right? That's our, that's our folks. One more thing before we get on to the actual album. I wanted to read a quote from that Robert Chalmers interview uh, where Mark is talking about the way former members of The Fall talk about being in the band and there's uh i want you to play along here yeah when i pause i want you to deliver the robert chalmers line and say post-traumatic stress disorder okay got it they talk about it like they fought in vietnam they suffer from 
what's that thing the Americans get? Post-traumatic stress disorder? No, what's it called? Selective memory. (laughs) After a while, they'll say, oh, Mark was great. At the time, all I heard was, you're a thief, you drink, I will kill you. (laughs) That might be all he hears, no matter what's happening around him, though. (laughs) Which I think is a good... Good transition into our three words for this nation's saving grace. Yeah, we better do it. Um, who's first? I don't know who went first last time. Do you have a preference? I just spoke a lot. Why don't you Why don't you say yours? Sure. I feel pretty good about these three. I went with murky, uh, gleeful, and inscrutable. Gleeful, I think, because there's a sadism to this record that is kind of fun. There's like very fun. It's a it's a wicked record. Yeah, there's a lot. It's very cackling in its delivery and inscrutable. You know, I I used obtuse when we did uh, Danger Doom. Uh, the difference, I think, is is I think what the folks on the annotated fall have proven as they as we record this, pour over thirty year old lyrics and offer point and counterpoint about what they could mean is that there are no answers, Trevor. You will never get to the bottom of this shit. This, like, (laughs) Mark E. Smith writes a little bit like Yoda. His phrasing is often very strange. Uh, And and it's just, it's a bottomless pit of, like, you're going to see shadows and figures down there, but it's a Rorschach test. And what what you decide it means says probably more about you than it did about Marky Smith at the time. <laughs> I love every word you just said. The Faller actually named after a book by Albert Camus, who spent a lot of his like literary time contemplating the absurd nature of the universe. And I think that just fits The Fall so well, because they are, when it all comes down to it, one of the most absurd bands I can think of. Yes. My three words, though, would be chaotic, demonic, Great. and heroic 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 in the way satan is depicted as a heroic figure in john milton's paradise lost sure keep that in mind yeah because he's a he because marky smith is a is a point of view he's the perspective character of this album and he gets some shit done So in that, and sense, you're really you're really rooting for him too. I feel like <laughs> me too. I I think that there are a couple of intrusions from outside sources where occasionally you have to kind of shudder and think, oh boy. But yes, for the most part, Marky Smith invites you to to join him in his world, and it's very easy and very tempting to do. But I think those first two words are a little more operative here: chaotic and demonic. There's a quote uh, spoken by one of the members of the band. I can't remember who it was in that documentary we both watched talking about um, what it was like being at a live fall show where they say, I've never been in a room that's so cackled with malevolence. We had our backs to the wall of the far end of the room and were extraordinarily grateful to have done so. There was so much hostility and rancor. Yeah. And there are bands that can't really translate what they're like live into the studio. The fall brings it all in there with them. Good Lord. That, By the way, that documentary is nonsense i mean much of it is it's really hard to follow it is really hard to follow yeah for sure but it 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 works in that it's the documentary form of a fall song (laughs) and before we get into the track by track there's a quote by john peel one of the 
staunchest supporters of this group that I'd like to read. And by the way, the worst thing you can do is say that you love the fall. That's a surefire way to get Marky Smith to talk serious shit about you, which he did about John Peel in almost any chance he got in an interview, just because John Peel was such a champion of the fall. I mean, like, God forbid Pavement says they love the fall because, oh boy... <laughs> Marky Smith is coming for them. Marky Smith has spoken about Pavement before. He said he heard Slanted and Enchanted and he thought they were ripping him off and he hated it. Yep. Yep. But John Peel uh, says, uh, you're never, he describes The Fall as a band where you're never sure what you're going to get. Sometimes what you get isn't what you want, but they're The Fall and what you get is what you need. This is, I encourage you always listening at home to follow along with the record, but I'm not, I won't be surprised if you gave this one a, a shot and then threw your hands up. It definitely rewards time and, and study and also just repetition. Um, I had only one other thing to mention before we got into the track by track too, which is that uh, Mark, he loves to take swipes and there's even one on the liner notes of this record the the back cover is like this uh, two page gatefold that's like a a xerox of a bunch of different articles and pictures of the fall um and there's this great like most of them are like re- live reviews of fall shows and pictures of the band and stuff but then there's this one towards the bottom that's from a a scorching review of the album moon rising by sonic youth and what you can what you can see of it of the of the article is it's hardly a progression over earlier outings, strung somewhere between the fall and the doors. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Which, by the way, I really enjoyed uh, that that the doors got name-checked on that back cover because I think there is a slight parallel there of, you know, Jim Morrison, in my opinion, is not a brilliant genius poet, but to the angry drunks who love him he always will be and there's a parallel there isn't there where like maybe marky smith is is a is a is a mad scientist and maybe he's a fraud but either way he has a a cult of true believers behind him and that's all that matters they certainly belong in the same club along with a few other characters that i'm sure we'll get to later on in the review but for now do you want to start talking about the tracks yeah, let's start with this intro, uh, Mansion. Let's roll up to Marky e. Smith's Mansion. Sounds to me like those ghouls from Disneyland's Haunted Mansion got tired of singing Grim Grinning Ghosts 500 times a day and made a little punk band together. <laughs> well, Bricks actually claims that this was her kind of attempt at writing the Haunted Mansion theme from Disneyland. Which is why it got its name. I really like it. So ominous. And there's there's definitely storm clouds over this album, but there's also an awful lot of that sadistic joy. It almost feels like this is the intro for a darker album that we're then we're about to get in a way. But it's also kind of goofy and cartoonish. Yeah, it, it almost could be the opening theme to some silly sitcom about monsters or something. I wanted to talk about that a little, though, because as you know, kind of my running theme for this season of Howl Your Monkeys has been, what kind of anime would this be a soundtrack for? <laughs> I forgot! <laughs> and I 
picture this one as a kind of the title sequence to a Studio Ghibli film about a middle-class demon who lives in a mansion in Manchester, England, and has a Princess Mononoke-esque pet deer that he rides around the city on. <laughs> the deer, of course, being a reference to the song Deer Park from Hex Induction Hour, which might be like my favorite fall song. Oh, well, thank you for that <laughs> for that deep cut. Hex is probably the other album that people always cite as like a... As a fall masterpiece you know outsiders talk about that one yeah i was initially i initially thought maybe we should discuss that one when doing this episode but i think we made the right choice with this one because this feels a little more this record feels a little more like it's about marky smith yeah uh this song's cool though it's very textural these symbols are really crashy they're like crashy as fuck you know and uh and interestingly for an album that feels to me like it's about marky smith he's not on it yeah, you, all you got is that little the the chorus of of voices the those very Disneyland haunted mansion voices. Uh, but Mark doesn't come in proper until the album's second track, "Bombast." All those who mind and title themselves and whose main and title is themselves shall feel the wrath of my bombast. Okay, can we unpack this opening spoken line? All those who mind entitle themselves, and whose main entitle is themselves, shall feel the wrath of my bombast. So that's a perfect example of the very weird way that Marky Smith writes sentences. I wanted to quote the annotated fall like verbatim here because the like first paragraph of their write-up on this, I think, is like one of the best examples of any writing about the fall ever, I think. So, sure talking about that opening line that i just quoted they say it would be impossible to inscribe this opening line with anything but an exclamation point at the end the song begins with an announcement a proclamation a statement of intent a declaration that is impossible to misconstrue except of course that it doesn't make any sense at all at first blush and subsequent blushes reveal a number of possible construals this is one of the idiosyncrasies of the fall. The component of a rock song that ought not contain any subtleties or misdirections never winds up being straightforward. Right. I have my read on it, Trevor. Okay. What's your read? So all those whose mind entitle themselves, I read as people who are entitled. So like, if you think you're special, that's the first part. If, you're, if your mind entitles you. Yeah. By, by you feel entitled because you think you are, essentially. And mm-hmm. whose main entitle is themselves, a.k.a. The only proof you have of how uh, how special you are is nothing. You just have yourself, right? Okay. Uh, shall feel the wrath of my bombast. Literally, I'm going to talk shit about you, but it's going to be ultimately pointless and meaningless shit. So, to summarize, I think what he's saying is, if you think you're hot shit, I'm going to talk shit about you. That's essentially what I read it as. That feels pretty definitive for the fall. Yeah, I, I think that's a good mission statement for the band. Love this bass tone, though. This is great. Oh, my God. The entire, the, the the way the fucking group sounds on this one. Oh, man. Can we talk about, can we talk about Carl Burns? Because like we've discussed, this is the first album with only one drummer on it in like four years. But credit to this dude, because if you told me that there were like three drummers on this song, I would have believed you. He does great work all over this album. He's an absolute powerhouse. You know, something that happens with, like, cats and rabbits is if the alpha dies, another one will start getting really fat and big to take over the alpha role. I think that's what we're seeing here. I dig that a lot. (laughs) Totally. 
But yeah, everyone's on fire. Even Mark, who's not doing a, a whole bunch in this song. He's just kind of providing background ad-libs and shouting random things. He's really good when he goes, clanging in my heart. And then he goes, ah! <laughs> Those are my favorite parts of the songs. The, the one he lets out. When everything is like building at the end, he sounds like a fucking jet plane on fire crashing <laughs> into the ground. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so good. I think on it. I think on an earlier episode, you once called him Chaotic Evil Morrissey, which is fun because th- this song kind of moves and also plays a similar role that the song "The Queen Is Dead" plays uh, in "The Queen Is Dead." It has like a similar kind of forward momentum to it, you know. It even reminds me of Tusk just a tiny bit, you know, the the Fleetwood Mac song Tusk. Because those big drums. I think a lot of times on this record and, and on this song is a perfect example of it. Marky Smith kind of hangs back in the mix. And I think it's because he wants you to lean in because then you'll be close enough for him to grab you. <laughs> I love that. Oh. Yeah, this is this is great. And it's sort of like. It's constantly vanishing, too. It's like anytime you think you kind of wrap your head around a piece of it, it's like, no, but did that really happen or am I just imagining it? And it drives you crazy thinking about it. There's like, there's, it's like, does my mind entitle myself? Do I do something called mind entitling? (laughs) Entitling myself with my mind? What is my main entitle? Is it what I'm entitled to? Is he suggesting that I'm not entitled to myself? That myself is something I must rather somehow earn uh, you, you know what i think what you need to do to make sense of these questions is buy a dictation pedal <laughs> make your make your account thankfully mark has gone on record to say what this song is about i have a quote from him here do you want to hear it oh yeah sending money to ethiopia was crazy just like sending money to hitler none of the starving people ever saw it but i say these things and people call me racist the weird thing is that bombast from this nation's saving grace predicted it all it's like all about Baghdad and bombs raining down. It was the same with Terry Waite says. The poor bugger gets kidnapped and shit. It's like precog. And we had his brother ringing my publisher asking how did he know? Or worse. I write these words and they sound good. But when they come true, it's really weird. But if I have any powers of recognition, I don't want to develop it. I, I don't even want to get into that shit. Yeah, this is this is some real cult leader <laughs> shit. Of like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> self-mythology building. <laughs> A little bit. You know what? The band sounds so tight here and Mark sounds so unhinged. It's like, it almost sounds like you're, like, picture an assembly line, like a Henry Fordian assembly line of, like, these well-oiled machines and these highly trained employees. And then just, like, this drunk anarchist fights his way into the factory and starts pushing machinery over. That's that's the image I get from this song. Bastard! (laughs) Great. This next track, though, somehow manages to sound even more unhinged. Army. This is great. This is a. I really agonized over my number three slot. Um, for my top three this week and and this was definitely in in competition but it didn't it didn't ultimately make the cut love these verse grooves especially the lead and the bass guitar which really they really remind me of love shack i I like it i like it and this one kind of 
has the same has a similar energy to that song too i think at least in parts because then during the choruses it dips into these very murky like bad trip sections well yeah the choruses are their own monsters but those but the verse sections like there's even moments where Mark sounds a little bit like a demonic Fred Schneider from the B-52s, especially when he goes, I got everything, everything I, I want. want. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah, really good. Uh, Barbie is an English colloquialism, which means insane, which works because Mark is British and crazy. This song feels like uh, <laughs> taking a holiday in Budapest and going on a crazy drug bender. I got a couple of quotes from the annotated fall for you. Here's here's them at their best, followed immediately by them at their worst slash also best. <laughs> Please. I really like this this insight. So somebody says, a pension for the Jews, a lyric in this song, likely refers to the pensions rewarded to Holocaust survivors uh, by the Germans in 1951. That's good analysis. Um, and then follow it up with, Barmy equals British Army. If this is new to you, maybe you should forget it, because the lyrics describe British Army history, as was also visible in my earlier comments and notes. <laughs> Love those gatekeepers. Yeah, shine on you crazy diamonds on the annotated fall. Love those arrangements during, the, like you said, the very stormy, rolling, uh, black sea waves of the of the barmy chorus sections. I love that shit. Uh the, the, the loud, quiet, loud of this track almost makes me wonder if, like, people have properly documented the fall's influence on the Pixies. And the way the verses just keep coming back after the choruses becomes absolutely maddening. It's like when you, like, you're not looking at the track time and you think the song is finally over, but then that, like, it's, it drives me insane. I almost could have done without the third verse, considering he just uses it to say, just call me the first a few yeah. times. Like, but if it wasn't if, there, it wouldn't be Margie Smith like holding you down on the pavement and subjecting <laughs> you to the fall. <laughs> That's true. Maybe a tighter three-verse version of it would be a little nicer. But, but hey, this is a great one. I really like this one. Speaking of that, I have a Margie Smith quote about uh, there actually being a lot more material written for this song. He says there are many more lines that than the ones that I actually used. A lot more choruses. When we recorded it, I was really sick, dead ill. I was on antibiotics. I had a really bad chest infection from smoking and not eating properly, and it looked like I was going to go into hospital. When we did Barmy, you could hear it in my voice, this rattle of phlegm. But it sounds good. It sounds better than if I'd done it straight. So then why, if you had all these other lyrics, why did we end up with the verse where he just yelled, just call me the first over and over again? <laughs> well, if if... Damon recorded Grace Jones ad-libbing for 15 hours. Why do we only have a couple quotes from her on Charger? You know, sometimes things just work out. That's a very good point. One more thing I want to say about this song. Uh, in addition to getting really into the fall this February, I spent uh, like an equal amount of time almost getting really obsessed with another band. They might be Giants. Yeah, sure. Those two groups might not have that much in common like at first glance, but... Uh, one thing they have in common besides their penchant for weird, absurdist audio art and uh, their exhaustive online fan bases. And, and a shitload of albums also. And a shitload of albums is that they both have a song that prominently features Istanbul. Oh, that's interesting. That that does seem yeah. like where they would meet is on like weird esoteric references to geopolitics. <laughs> Speaking of weird esoteric references, this song has a lot of them. 
what you need. Okay, number two on the album for Dylan Flynn. Nice. This was initially in my top three, but it got bumped later on. Love this riff on the acoustic uh, that underpins this song. You know what it reminds me of, the the riff in this song? It reminds me of the kind of riff that I will get stuck playing if I find my way to an acoustic guitar while I'm having a mushroom trip. Sure. Uh, It has that kind of like... 75% 75% of a complete thought feel to it and it also feels like you couldn't stop playing it if you wanted to you know like it just just rattles and rolls and spins and keeps going <laughs> does that make sense if you haven't done mushrooms it might not <laughs> but when that bass line kicks in woo boy that's fucking great woo boy real good this whole song feels like a really good early LCD sound system track to me oh I can feel that yeah when Mark shouts uh, get up Make a buck. Get off. Make a buck. Get off. Make a buck. My read on that is that he's voicing like he's kind of playing a character of like a like a business yuppie who's who's judgmentally shouting at a homeless man, but he's also having that character yell at him like he's the bum, you know? That's my take on it. Uh but you could also look at the first three lines of the song as a complete thought if you wanted to, which is, uh, which would be, because it starts with the how can I, ooh, you could you could look at it as a full sentence. So like, how can I get up, make a buck, my race is bred on hash? As in like, I like that. <laughs> there's, can't make any money because I'm fucked up. I've been yelling, get up, make a buck at myself in my head whenever I wake up in the morning for the past like couple weeks. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You could almost make a, an alarm clock out of that. My favorite lyric on this song, though, is meet your horrible new dad. <laughs> the Marky <laughs> Smith story. <laughs> I love when the band starts the into the what you need refrain because uh, they started off, you know, in the background, the what you right. need. And the imagery I always get is like, I always see like circus carnies and freaks addressing the camera in a huge group or something i picture him preaching to a huge bar full of drunks sure that too uh but then but then mark joins in finally he like half yelps his own what you need and then he's way up in front of the mix trevor you know the moment i'm talking about and then like the Mm -hmm. kick drums underneath him too uh it's one of those it's one of those like you said lean in and i'll grab you moments exactly it feels like the first time on the album kind of that mark has stepped out of the shroud of mist that he remains in you know and the first time maybe we get fully drawn into that crowd definitely this song this song makes sense to me though like this the mood of this song is like a it's like a 1985 version of the stones's satisfaction you know it's like it's like fuck everything society's telling me to be kind of is my take you know i think this is one of the more accessible tracks on the record even like if i were to put together like a intro to post-punk mix and i wanted to represent the fall this is definitely one of the songs that i would choose to like throw it in there as a representation of them when they do this thing on the song where they where they play the cowbell to like punctuate certain lines like out of reach uh and it makes me think of the clap emoji you know <laughs> you know those tweets oh i love you that that's great you do the clap emoji that's what it reminds me of yeah yeah. The cowbell's very LCD sound system, too. Definitely. Should we talk about the three rules of audience? Yeah. Why don't, why don't you tell me about those? <laughs> there there were a couple things There were a couple things I chose not to delve deeper into, like expecting you to want to sink your teeth into them, and this is one of them. So 
Tell me about the three rules of audience. Sure. So one of the things that he, one of the many things that he just randomly mentions in passing uh, in this lyric is the three rules of audience um, as in the list of things that you need, along with a bit of Iggy Stooge and other things like that. Uh, and so I the, thank God for the boys on the annotated fall. He mentioned three rules of audience on another fall song, but never said what they were until an interview when somebody asked him. And he said, oh, yeah, that was like this known thing in the band. And we would sometimes post it uh, on some of the venues. Although, Trevor, people have disputed that and said that that never happened. What were the rules, though? Okay, rule number one. No requests. You do not pay us enough to dictate our actions. That's a good one. That's a good one. Love it. Number two. Here's where here's where <laughs> we need our boys on the annotated ball. Number two, we do not play for the ghost dance. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Trevor. <laughs> Number three, if you don't like it, it's already too late. That's very that's very Mark E. Smith. It's very Mark E. Smith. <laughs> if you don't like it, it's already too late. <laughs> Mark says that this is a, this song is kind of about this Twilight Zone episode. Right, um, it, ta- that's, it takes its name from it, uh, What You Need. The lyric, uh, slippery shoes for your horrible feet, is like a direct reference. Right, but apparently he was mixing them up. Apparently the episode he's talking about is actually called The Four of Us Are Dying, and then the, the title episode is a different one. Um, but I do have a quote from The Annotated Fall, which I really like about that. Uh, Go ahead. Just watch this Twilight Zone episode. Are we sure that the second rule of audience refers to the North American ghost dance religion? It seems rather far from Mark's usual subject interest and a very confusing way to reference rough trade style left wing didacticism in pop music. All right, so let's talk about Rough Trade because this song mentions Jeff Travis, who was the founder of Rough Trade Records for whom the fall recorded several albums. Uh, who Marky Smith didn't have a great relationship with. Oh, shock. Shock. I have a quote from him about his time on Rough Trade. MES says, Rough Trade were soft, boring hippies. They'd go, er, the T-boy doesn't like the fact that you've slagged off Wahit on this number, and fucking the girl who cooks the fucking rice in the canteen doesn't like the fact that you've used the word slags. They had a whole meeting over the fact that we mentioned guns in one song. I'd go, what the fuck has it got to do with you? Just fucking sell the record, you fucking hippie. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Mark ever liked a, a, a label person. I, I can't imagine. The last thing I want to say about the song is that uh, it has a dirty hairy moment that I think we should kind of chew on for a minute. Oh, yeah, please. There's uh, a lyric uh, that sounds a lot at first listen like a bit of Iggy Stooge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has since come out in interviews that it's actually a vid of Iggy Stooge, as in short for a video. Right. However, we got that little piece of knowledge from this interview. I, I can't remember what it was from, but it was a printed interview. And the interviewer asks him if the lyric was a bit of Iggy's Stooge. Iggy's like Iggy apostrophe S, as in possessive. A stooge that belongs to Iggy. And Mar- and Marky Smith corrects him going, no, it's actually a vid of Iggy's stooge. But it gets printed as a vid of Iggy's possessive stooge. And we have and we have no way of knowing whether like Mark heard that possession thrown in there, you know? And we'll never have a way of knowing. He's dead now. <laughs> we'll never, never. It's <laughs> fucking drives me up a wall. <laughs> Yeah, man, you've really drank the Kool-Aid. 
But it's, but you know, it's the from harm versus among dilemma all over again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Iggy's stooge versus Iggy stooge. <laughs> but, but like, appropriately, like, the fall, they both sound exactly the same. Is he saying vid of Iggy's stooge or vid of Iggy's stooge? Well, we don't know. None of this, none of this is ever helped by Mark's extremely thick Northern English accent. And, you know... Being from the north, I think, contributed to the sizable chip on his shoulder, Trevor, because he, he there's almost no one that he hated more than Londoners and people from the south of England for thinking that they were better than people from the north. But he also hated northerners. So <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to talk about this uh, earlier on. He's Mar- Marky Smith is from Manchester, which is a city in England that's given us a number of famous musicians over the years, including another member of the Gorillaz family, Sean Ryder, yes. uh, as well as Blur's old rivals in Oasis, the Gallagher brothers, and even, we've said his name before, Morrissey. And I don't know too much about like uh, English stereotypes, but it seems like, uh, from what I've heard and as exemplified by some of the personalities I just named, uh, people from Manchester, or Mancunians as I think they're known, are are supposed to be a bit like sour, and I have a quote from uh, I have a quote from good old Mes on Manchester as well. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I fucking hate Manchester. I was in Cardiff recently. You should have seen the shops there. They're fantastic. I had this breakfast in Cardiff. I could have eaten it every day. All the food was great. Manchester, the food, the shops has always been crap. Yeah, yeah, that's Mark. That's Mark. <laughs> Would have been really nice for a, to hear a duet before between Sean Ryder and Marky Smith before he died, but missed opportunities. What can you do? What can you do? We can talk about spoilt Victorian child. this song i think this is probably my least favorite cut on the record it's it's definitely uh, a lower point for me it's it's cool it's it's a little more by the numbers than a lot of the songs feel like it's a little less referential too this is like um my understanding of this song trevor is that simon rogers kind of put this song together he was trying to write a straightforward rock and roll song and then it turned into this kind of shrill little six four time thing and Mark, I don't think, is helping on the shrill side of things either. I think this is one of the best cases for MES as the chaotic evil Morrissey. Like, this song sounds like something the Smiths would have recorded if they were all demons. Yeah, I can feel that. But I I really just like the hook. I'm not into it. I Uh, like the hook, and I like the part where, I like the bridge where uh, Mark goes, I know that the servants keep their order knowledge, and as you walk on in the footsteps of Steed into the encrusted green and wild, you know you are a spoilt Victorian, Victorian child. child. That's the best part. It always makes me feel like insecure and ashamed of myself. Like, fuck, am I? Is he right? Like, it it, it makes me take a long, <laughs> long look at my life. It does it to me. I don't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. But everyone, to- everyone's tone is pretty good. I think my main problem actually is just like the groove of this song just kind of makes me feel like I'm being mindlessly bounced back and forth between a couple of chords. Like, I just don't. I can't really get in with this groove. It feels like a jam that they never really developed into a full song. Yeah, definitely. It did give us a really great quote from the annotated fall, though. (laughs) Sure. 
maybe this is about a child whose innocence and beauty has been spoiled by smallpox? One of many infectious diseases still common in 19th century England that killed or disfigured children and adults, especially in burgeoning cities. In the 1960s, the polio vaccine was administered with sugar. In the 1980s, the world was declared free of smallpox. You know, just a thought. What did those last... What do those last two sentences have to do with anything else? <laughs> you learn something every day on the annotated fall. You really do. It's a, they're a wonderful group of people. Love them. Um, but I agree that that little, that little spoken interlude at the end is the best part. But I don't know. This one just never really doesn't never really did anything for me. This next song, on the other hand, is in my top three. L A. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Trevor, because I feel like right now we're we're entering into a couplet here that's going to be all about Bricksmith, and boy, do I have a lot to talk about. Right, because this is kind of Bricksmith's song on the album. It's uh, She's from L.A., and she says that this is a love song to her city. She was very homesick at the time, and she wanted to try and capture the feelings she had for L.A. in a song. And I think she totally did it. You know, as somebody who lives in L.A., this is what the city sounds like. Definitely. Especially you can imagine like a 1980s version of L.A. especially being kind of really summarized by this. It's a chaotic evil band writing a chaotic evil song about a chaotic evil city. Really cool. Love Marky e. Smith's opening rhythmic grunts. They make me think of like a vain Angelino in the gym or like on the dance floor trying to be really sexy. Uh, love Bricks' little ah, Those are great. Um, oh, I thought that was him. I thought he's doing the uh, falsetto. No, parts. those are bricks. Uh, I love oh, cool. okay. Bricksmith, Trevor. I think she's a tragic figure on this album, and these two songs, this and the next one, are going to really paint a vivid picture of her life in the fall. So let's let's meet Bricks. Um, she was born Laura Salinger, and she got her name Bricks from the Clash song "Guns of Brixton." She was a punker, uh, kind of an intelligentsia punker, and. Uh, she met Mark at a fall show in 1983 when she was 21, already a huge fan. She'd made a banner for him uh, saying, like, Marky Smith, welcome to Chicago. It was in a Chicago show. Uh, so when he asked her to join his cult and later asked her to marry him, she felt like the luckiest girl in the world. Two years later, when this uh, album was being made, she was stuck and she was miserable in Manchester. She, she still believed, like, totally in Mark's genius, and she really never disavowed herself of that belief trevor she still uh in the rearview mirror to this day kind of like speaks about him with this admiration for his beautiful mind there's a nice subtle moment between the two of them in that documentary where they're giving an interview together like years after they divorced i think definitely but he was a terrible control freak uh Mm -hmm. and as a result she had no friends she had no world kind of outside of her very unhealthy marriage to him and her her relationship with the band which was very like she the way she described it is nobody in the band would really talk to her because they were afraid to essentially marky smith is quoted as saying people are shit scared of me so there's something there's something so earnestly tugging at my heartstrings about this song of this girl who's like essentially playing make-believe like building a musical pillow fort of her home city because she misses it so badly and because she doesn't have anybody in her life or any friends uh that that really imbues this song with a lot of meaning when i listen to it um 
And and I think she did an amazing job here. I think that, like you said, she, she totally captured the vibe of the city. She takes that line from the movie Valley of the Dolls uh, that she says about halfway through the song. This is my happening, and it freaks me out. This is what a great t-shirt. That would make a great t-shirt. <laughs> and then also, uh, there's a line from T.J. Hooker, the really shitty cop show starring... Uh, uh, William Shatner. White Snow, scumball. Really good line, bushes are in disagreement with the heat. That's a great Los Angeles line. Very good, yeah. She says that in L.A. It gets so hot you can almost hear the bushes complain. Definitely. A, a killer drum solo uh, and fill into that outro. This is just dark and sweaty and, and fucking you know great it's like one of those la nights where it never cools off and appropriately mark kind of stays out of the way here it's mostly an instrumental song i do love that hook he contributes though that l l l l a a a a yeah that's great and this was a music video by the way that got a lot of play on mtv uh i guess in 1985 they were still kind of hard up for a consistent flow of of new music videos and uh, and this this video i think was a lot of 1980s Americans uh, foray into this band and is still one of the more like streamed songs from this record. It's a really good one, really listenable. And there's something there's something so compellingly tragic about Bricks as a figure in this song and what this song was for her. You know, this kind of like captive member of this of this cult who uh, who had to recreate her home so that she could feel like she was in it for a little while. I like that read of it a lot. Yeah, definitely top three in the record for me. <clears throat> We're not done talking about Bricks, though, because we have to talk about Vixen. I have been waiting for this moment. Uh, since, since I think last week when we were preparing for our, our Muse record review, um, and you messaged me at like the 11th hour saying, I just learned that this last track is a bonus song. And I was like, oh, is Dylan going to try and talk to me about Vixen and can't get ahead when we do This Nation Saving Grace. Yes, I am. Because, Dylan, these songs aren't on the actual record. All right, well, I don't know what to do about this because I got a lot of notes. What do we do? (laughs) I didn't listen to... uh, I didn't listen to Vixen, and I didn't listen to Can't Get Ahead that much. I did listen to the uh, Peel Session version of it a couple times. But uh, I'm always... I am totally in the mood to learn everything I can about The Fall now, so... Hit me with what you got about this one. Sure. I'll, I'll briefly talk about the song itself, but I think really it's kind of the, the conclusion of Brick Smith's story on this record. So that's what I'll focus on. Um, Great. So it to me, it's got a very like Dick Dale, Link Ray, like 1950s rambling bar fight music vibe. Uh, it's it's a duet between Bricks and and, uh, and Mark, much more so than, than L.A. They, they sing the hook together uh, and they trade off on the verses. It feels like a little bit like a surf song being made by a heroin addict or something. It's like very, very sleepy. Um, but the the okay, I'll, I'll, here's what Brick says about it in her, in her book. That song's very special to me. It was inspired by a TV documentary on foxes. It depicted an urban fox uh, living in the city with her cubs and how she was such a solitary creature. 
in it, I sing The Vixen Has No Friends. She also, by the way, sings uh, uh, Look at the Vixen with No Home, All Alone with No Home. That's like the, the whole opening section about this Vixen character. Writing it, I thought that it was about an animal, not a woman. But subconsciously, I was really writing about myself. There were so many parallels between the Vixen and myself. I identified with her and was even referred to as a rock and roll Vixen in the press. So Brix starts this song out, Trevor, by throwing herself this kind of pity party. And, and she ends on this refrain, with no home, all alone, with no home. And then Mark literally interrupts her and, <laughs> and says, The Triple Gang and the Throng did not feel helpless or alone. It's as if, it's as if Mark is saying, like, shut up about your problems already. And as if the song is saying... Well, technically, I do have some company, but trust me, he he barely counts. He's, he's thoroughly in his own fucking world. Yeah, I read that almost not as him saying, like, shut up about your problems. I, I see that as just him being completely oblivious to them. Right, just just not even, it doesn't even register, right? Yeah, which is a whole different issue. I, here's another thing that, that fascinates me about the song. I mean, it's very much like a pastiche of those Link Ray songs, like, like Ramble and things like that. And... Link Ray is, like, on this very, very short list of artists who Marky Smith respects. Uh, we'll talk about another one, actually, later on this album. And He's coming up. And and when I say a very short list, I mean fucking don't bother holding up your second hand. There are not many artists that Marky Smith respects. So MES doesn't even like David Bowie, I was shocked to learn. No, fuck no. He thinks he's a hack. Uh so, so what I love about this song in the narrative of, of this tragic Brick Smith figure who's like a Disney princess trapped at the top, the top of a tower, like singing her little song out of her window, is that she had to write this song that she knew would appeal to her cult leader so that she could sneak her little secret SOS out to her loved ones. It's so fascinating. Like she had to make a Link Ray song so that she could weep about being fucking alone and stuck in this cult. And like, oh my God, I just love it. I love her. I love this song as the conclusion of that little like subplot about her in the middle of this album. Uh yeah, there's no other album like that in the world to me, and I guess that this song isn't truly on the album, but I, but fuck, it's fascinating. Like, Bricks carved out a little bit of this record for herself, and a compelling story comes out of it. Um, and meanwhile, on the Annotated Fall, I just wanted to say, it would seem to be about a person, wouldn't it? But historically, the triple gang can refer to Prussia, Russia, and Austria— <laughs> Who, part, who partitioned Poland from 1772. Following this up, the Vixen was a British ship captured by Russia in 1836. So I think it's plain to see that there's a lot more happening here. Let's keep digging. Do you want to keep digging into the uh, second bonus track? Couldn't get ahead. I just couldn't get ahead. Absolutely. Uh, couldn't get ahead. I don't have that much to say about it. It's very Ramonesy. Um, I do love Mark's delivery of the title lyric. Couldn't get ahead. Very good. I think he plays harmonica on this one, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and not badly, either. <clears throat> oh, and I should say, I, I said Vixen was my number three uh, song on the record. So I guess if, if I have to be, like, gunned in my head, yeah. my actual number three then would be probably Barmy, I guess. Anyway, couldn't get ahead. Uh, it's 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 pretty straightforward. It's like 
these three verses about this guy who just can't catch a break, essentially. More or less. And then the fourth verse is very funny because it's got like a can't beat him. If you can't beat him, join him last verse where like the protagonist character's problems all go away when he like starts wearing Armani and acting like E.T. and he gets a Cabbage Patch Kid. Like he, he gives in to the 80s zombies and, and all of his problems go away. Pretty funny. Great. Well, I didn't listen to either of those two, but I think your discussion of Vixen definitely added a bit to the program. So I'm, I'm glad you took them as canonical. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a, a fascinating subplot. <laughs> Let's get back to the proper record, though, with Gut of the Quantifier. Number one. Cannot stop listening to this song. Love this song. I'm telling you now, I'm telling you this. Life could be an hour. The hour of sin that really fits. All the groups hit it big. Make the cane gang look like an Einstein. This is my least favorite on the record. I mean, I like it. I just, it doesn't draw me in like the other ones do. Oh, you're crazy. Fuck, this is the one I keep sending to people. I can't stop listening to it. Oh, fuck. I love the little guitar harmonic ding that like locks into that groove. I love the, here's a controversial proclamation. The fall in 1985 has the best rhythm section of the mid-80s. I Like, fuck, man. I love this rhythm section. And, like, it starts off with this, like, barely on-mic rapping and babbling. And you're like, what is, what is this? And then the drum and the bass comes in. I'm telling you now, and I'm telling you this. Life can be an upward, downward chip. Fuck. Oh, shit. I love it, dude. Great. Here comes a great verse. Here comes a great verse, a great Marky Smith verse. They take from the medium poor to give to the needy poor via the government poor. Give it to the poor poor. They're knocking down my really door. Good. <laughs> really good. I love really when he good. goes, huh, 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 before, the, before they repeat that verse again later. Um, I love during that little buildup when the drums fall out. Stick, stick in the mud. Stick, stick in the, the god. god. I always hear, uh, I, I keep hearing stick it to the gods, but I think that is just my own personal chaotic evil reverberating with Marky Smith. <laughs> yeah, I love how that gets pushed back into the mix and he keeps doing verses over it. It's almost like you can imagine those two lines being the constant background chatter of Marky Smith's schizophrenia. <laughs> a little bit. Because that's what he does. He's a stick in the mud about everything. He's obstinate about everything. And he sticks people in the gut any chance he gets. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. Love it. it does Love definitely it. work as like a as like a, a you know his functioning uh, mantra. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Something I wanted to talk about is uh, the reference to the Thule group in this song. This is the Thule group, which is an allusion to the Thule Society, which is a 20th century secret organization dedicated to arcane and occult studies. Apparently, Hitler was a member of the Thule Society before his rise to power. Although I read that he severed his ties with the group around 1920. And that the society became defunct by, like, the middle of the 1920s. I like that. <laughs> I like any any dictator, like, you know, illusions in a Marky Smith song feels right at home, right? I like it, but why does every iconic, like, British frontman have to, at one point in their career, at one point in their career, flirt with fascism? Like, you got, like, most famously probably David Bowie, Joy Division, well, Depeche Mode. Marky Smith, I, I don't know if flirts with is the <laughs> right way to put it. Marky Smith is a little bit of a fascist, certainly in like his relationships and how he manages his career. And 
Not not politically though. I dug into it a little bit. No, no, no. He was like very outspoken about about. He originally supported the UK Labour Party, but after the Tony Blair era, he joined the Socialist Workers Party. I have a great uh, quote from him though. Uh, when asked during a mid nineteen eighties interview as to what policies he would adopt if he became prime minister, he said, "I'd half the price of cigarettes, double the tax on health food, then I declare war on France." <laughs> I think that the reason these illusions show up in the fall is not so much that he was fetishizing fascism, but it, more that he probably saw himself as a kindred spirit with some of the men who were at the helms of the of the, the great, in scare quotes, fascist uh, dictatorships of the 20th century. He definitely has a bit of a Nazi fascination. I mean, he wore he wore a fucking leather trench coat to plenty, many a fall gig. He looked so good in that thing. <laughs> Thank bricks for that. He does look pretty cool in it. Uh, meanwhile, on the annotated fall, Trevor, <laughs> user one, I have wondered whether stick it in the gut slash mud was a reference to vaginal and anal sex. User number two. <laughs> that's not a bad read, by the way. Not at all. No, no, no. User number two. Not sure, but Einstein chip is a reference to the Tung Einstein computer produced by a Taiwanese company designed and built in the UK and released in the summer of 1984. Listeners, this is happening right now. <laughs> there are comments just like this being posted on the annotated fall every day as you're listening to this. <laughs> A great, a great um, annotated fall quote that I have that I think sums up uh, that site. Uh, talking about Marky Smith's use of the word chip in this song, they say, um, Chip may be an empty signifier which allows the lyricist to draw connections that otherwise would not be available to him. It is possible that it is meant to have a more determinate semantic content than this, but I do not have much of an idea about what that would be. Oh, God. <laughs> Here's a question, Trevor. Do we unleash this podcast when it goes up onto the Fall Online forum and let them grouse about it? Or do we just, like, keep away and hope that they never find it? I've been I've been asking that myself the past couple of days as we've been preparing to record. It's definitely a decision we're going to have to make. It could catapult us into fame and fortune unforetold. In fact, maybe. But we could also we could also get some responses from fall fans. But if we if we if we do have a new windfall of cash, do you think that you might be in the market for a new house? I don't know, but I hear Marky Smith just bought one. This intro is a little bit clashy. Do you get that? Sure, and this is another big uh, like deranged Smiths moment for me. Also a little bit gun clubby, I think. This song takes us into like my favorite stretch of tracks on the album, probably though. It's a strong close. It's a really it's strong a close. Really good three song run we're looking at here. Definitely. My new house. You should see my house. My new house. You should see my new house. I love that one little sour note they keep playing. Uh, it almost sounds like a guitar that's like complaining because its back hurts or something you know like uh yeah the groove is very good i think the groove is very good this song the whole song kind of gives me the feeling of like an upper middle class person who's like locking the gates behind him to hold off his former peers you know keep away from my new house i just i just see it as marky smith winding up with a new house and it's like this big kind of super villain layer almost and he just kind of wants to talk about it speaking to a more personal note though uh I have a quote from Bricks talking about uh, 
when she and Mark bought a house together. I believe it was this one. She says, our biggest purchase together was a house. It was around the corner from Mark's childhood home where his parents still lived. It was very comforting to him to live a block away from his mother. We bought the house from a Baptist couple who had a kind, calm energy. There was a good vibe in the house. That's nice. It's good It's good that at least yeah. she had moments of peace. <laughs> I don't get a good vibe from this song, though. He makes it sound like, going back to that first track we talked about, an, a haunted mansion. He also can't say anything normal. Like, wh- what about when he goes, like, with Lad centered in the middle of him? What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> what does that mean? He's talking about the windows. With lead centered in the middle of them. I don't understand what that means. My favorite lyric is, those razor blades eject when I press eject. <laughs> just because of how easily I can picture MES living in a house that has razor blade booby traps. Definitely. I think he's probably talking about his his personal shaver, but maybe he's not. <laughs> maybe he has a scary dungeon. What do you make of, that Halifax chopper sure dropped me a cropper. Uh, I shrug and move on. That's what I make of it. (laughs) I do like that he shouts out those Baptists that he he bought the house from. Me too. No rabbit hutch about it. I bought it off the Baptists. I get their mail and I get miffed. I do like the build. It's a good performance for build from Mark because he really, he starts off in one place, like he starts off in a, in a, you should see my new house. And by the end, he's in a very... You, you should, should see my new house. house. I love it. This Very is one good. of my favorite MES performances on the record. And uh, and the the sort of banal materialism is very David Burnish too, which I'm sure he would fucking roll over in his grave to hear me make that comparison. Oh yeah, yeah. I I cannot even imagine how much he dislikes the Talking Heads. Uh, more li- loud, quiet, loud happening here too. I like how the song keeps kind of tricking you into kind of dozing off because the band sort of winds down and gets quieter and then fucking they kick all in you know for the hook um, very good whenever i research an album i go on the site rate your music and just look through the reviews people leave for stuff on there uh oh i do that sometimes that's always fun uh, one poster was writing about their experience listening to this album with like their father or something and after a couple tracks uh their dad says i have no idea what uh, anything that this guy is saying and then they listen to this song and he goes well i know what he's saying on this one <laughs> good you should see my new house. Yep, definitely. This next track, though, my number one on the record, Paintwork. Hey, uh, hey, 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 Mark, you're, uh, you're messing up the paintwork. Hey, Mark, got your fingerprints on the paintwork. Hey, 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 Mark, you're messing up the paintwork. <laughs> it's a... This song is a mixture of, of demo and studio elements. So there's most of a complete tape demo, uh, and there's also like a live and studio rhythm section happening over it. And like, <laughs> also, <laughs> it's got a very famous quote unquote happy accident in it. I think this is the record's dare moment. Oh, yeah, I can feel that. I can feel that. It, the, yeah. the accidental, yeah. Much like we have that history about Sean in the booth going, it's coming up, it's coming up, it's coming up, and Damon turning that into the hook. I think there's a similar, there's a similar within the fall fin, and there's a similar, I'm not sure if I buy it 100% uh, going on as well. Right, because this is one example where we have like, uh, we have con- contradicting stories. So let's let's say that this song kind of at the beginning accidentally samples a television recording of like a so it's it's from an educational program called how do red giants form carbon right an open Um, university broadcast thanks to uh thanks to danny no on the annotated fall for 
figuring that one out. He went yes. on quite a journey, I read. Quite a journey. You could go on, on it with him if you read the annotated vault page for the song. Uh, the lore would have us believe that Mark was... There are a couple stories. He was practicing this song with a demo that he had on a tape recorder, right? That's part of his process, right. I guess, and maybe part of his writing process as well. Uh, he was in his a hotel room, the TV was on, and he accidentally hit record uh, instead of play and, and taped over a little bit of his demo and, and this TV broadcast made it onto it. He liked the sound of it so much that they kind of kept it in there and kept the demo as part of the song and, and made it a sonic element of the of the tune. That's my unpacking of the lore. Am I, is that correct? I'm, that's, that's what he said. This is what producer John Leckie said. He had a tune, a little synthesizer thing, which was on tape, and I think it was one of those cassettes with a record button, and he dropped it, and it started recording in the bag, so that interruption is all we could do. It was like, it doesn't matter, leave it in. And then there's uh, Simon Rogers, who says that paintwork was sort of a half-done in my bedroom, and then Mark took the cassette away. He had it in his little dictaphone cassette recorder and sat on it and made a big hole in the middle. But John Leckie was like, well, what we'll do is put the cassette on the 24 track. We'll play along to it. And then where Mark rubbed that bit out, we'll start playing. I feel like we're, we're looking at the, at the Gospels and we're trying to figure out like what really happened when Christ took the, the demo up onto the mountain. <laughs> right. So it's, one of, so it's one of those three things. Or Marky Smith was like, I'm just going to put a sample of this thing in here. Yeah. And it feels, it feels, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm way off base here. It feels a little vapor wavy to me when it happens. Oh, totally. Yeah, I I feel that. You know, it's got that For kind sure. of it's yeah. got that kind of found audio creepiness to it. Uh, I also really like when musicians name check themselves in their own songs. It doesn't happen that often in outside of like rap music. Yes, and I love I love that this is a song specifically about Marky Smith, and not just about him but about him messing things up because he messed up this song. At least the lore would have us believe. And self-loathing is an important part of his worldview. I mean, yeah. he kind of doesn't understand when people like him, which is why he lashes out at them <laughs> so much. <laughs> which is very chaotic evil. It's very chaotic evil. Um, this is This is like, this is kind of, it's weird. This is one of the more pleasant sounding songs on the album but i think it's also the most chaotic evil on the record i could totally feel that the instrumental that groove especially really reminds me of of so much of that magnetic field song the chicken with its head cut off uh, oh i like that dun, dun, cool. dun, 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 dun. it's got that very similar groove to it yeah um i love the the build on this song and and i love when that very like sex pistols steve jones guitar punch in happens too uh, that's very cool. It kind of comes out of left field. I like I like the that like that beat that uh Carl like ends every couple bars on that bump bump. Very cool, very weird song. Some of the most Markish delivery you're going to hear on this record too. Like especially especially I think my favorite part is, is when he goes and this he's like mumbling as he often does, but he goes like and this lousy business was the last thing I was ever imagining hey mark why can't i live in england (laughs) this song is kind of about living in england as well i have a quote uh from him i want to read about that 
He says, with paintwork, there is a lot there about England compared to Europe. How, if you're not some flag-waving moron, you don't fit in. This wasn't what England was about. It was about individuals. And that's what paintwork was saying. And I like this song a lot as a track about not fitting in. Because, you know, MES doesn't. That almost makes me feel like it, it, it partners up on this record with What You Need, which had like a similar rejection of... of what is current and what is expected of you like there's a there's a there's a through line there for sure definitely and i think that through line kind of of not fitting in as well kind of travels right to the next track i am Thomas Duque. that's right featuring mes himself on violin i am demo suzuki This is my number two on the record. Love this song. The idea of the fall doing a Can impression is so fucking weird. Damo Suzuki is the lead singer of Can, a German kraut rock band from the 70s that, like like you mentioned earlier, they're one of the very, very few bands that MES is fond of and inspired by. I actually have the list. I think it includes Can, Gene Vincent, Link Ray, Captain Beefheart, no surprise there, Bo Diddley, The Monks, The Velvet Underground, and The Stooges. It's a short list. Yep. <laughs> it's a real short list. What have you got in that paper bag? Is it a dose of infinite seeking? And Can is also a band that plays a very special role in my friendship with a uh, friend of the program and honorary Hallelujah Monkey, Maxton Stenstrom. Oh, Maxton, I miss him already. I wish he was here. I, I miss him a lot. We're both big fans of the group. He came to love them. Uh, we both got really into him, actually, shortly following like our moves to L.A., but kind of independently of each other. Um, and in fact, we even recorded a special bonus episode of Hallelujah Monkeys while you were on paternity leave, where we did track-by-track reviews of two of their most famous records. But it was eaten by the void, right? It was, it was accidentally destroyed immediately after we finished making it, so it'll probably, that, that'll never really happen. Tragic, tragic. It was going to be called Hallelujah Monkeys after <laughs> a fan song from their big record, Take Omega. Yeah, Take Omega, and, and the other one that I know pretty well is the Bamyasi one. Yeah, those are the two records we talked about. I do like Can quite a bit, and there is, like, I kind of understand why they would appeal so much to Mark, because Mark is kind of, like, really angered by commercialism and wants every song to strive to be interesting in an uncommercial way, and, and Can, I think, goes for a similar thing um, at times, and... But there is something so fucking weird about this band, like doing a can tribute song. It's so it's such a weird, it's such a weird idea that does work. But it's like I think it's perfect. I think it's very right. On paper, it's weird as fuck. On paper, it's just. I, a, I don't think I don't think so at all. I think I think there's. Let me talk about it. I think there's two ways to interpret the song. Okay, and both require you to be at least a little familiar with. The, the guy that it's about, Damo Suzuki. Well, there's a lot of just, like, facts about him, right? Kind of. There's a lot people should know about Damo Suzuki, but I think the most important thing is that, like MES, he's an inimitable, distinct, and original character who doesn't play by anybody else's rules. Yes. And I think because they're such kindred spirits, I look at this song as uh, Marky Smith using Damo Suzuki as a way to explain himself to the world. Oh, almost like justifying. <laughs> His action? Not not justifying, but I think he sees himself as something unfathomable to most people. Right. And the closest he can come to explaining himself 
is to kind of offer a comparison to something else that's weird, but people have kind of managed to understand. Yeah, I feel like you. you don't need to understand me. You know, Damo Suzuki, I'm Damo Suzuki. Yeah. And the other way I see the song is as like Marky Smith kind of proclaiming himself heir to the abrasively weird artsy punk guy throne, which I think Damo would have previously been sitting on. It's like he turns Damo Suzuki's name into a title like Caesar. I feel that. Yeah. I I definitely feel both of those reads. The second one feels like more, almost more Markish to me than the first, but they both feel, they both feel in character enough. So good work. (laughs) And there's something almost, there's almost like an air of menace to the way he says it too. Isn't there like, as if it's a threat or something, it almost reminds me of that line from that Captain Phillips movie with Tom Hanks. I am the captain now. I am the captain now. (laughs) Look at me. I am Damo Suzuki now. It's Marky Smith's world, and we're all just living in it. It's funny how he does start the album off by saying, I am Barmy, and he ends it by saying, I am Damo Suzuki. <laughs> the two things are often one and the same. Here's a weird connection, but when when Mark double-tracks his vocals on the song, which is something he doesn't do a lot on this record, by the way, uh, when the beat like really kicks in and he starts kind of getting shouty, uh, he sounds a little tiny bit like... like Tunde Adebimpe from TV on the radio a little bit, especially over this groove, like mostly to do with his inflections when he's like, what have you got in that paper bag? That's very, that's very TV on the radio to me. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, I see that. Definitely. But he, he also just sounds fucking cool. Like he sounds cool on this song, man. Not necessarily a word I would always use to describe Marky Smith, but I think he sounds fucking cool on the song. <laughs> it's kind of the climax of the entire record. Did you uh did you did you look up anything about um how Damo himself reacted to it? No, I don't know anything about that, so please share. There's a great quote where he says, When I first heard that song, I thought there must be someone else called Damo Suzuki. I never thought someone would make a song for me. The piece was really great though. See, that's where Mark Eastmith and Damo Suzuki are different creatures. I don't I think Damo is like a fucking sweetheart. Yeah, he seems like a very nice nice guy. He was a Jehovah's Witness at one point. Which is mentioned on this song. Yeah. Steve Hanley has a quote uh, about meeting Damo after the song came out. He said, Years later I met Damo Suzuki in a club in Germany. He came up to me and said, I am Damo Suzuki. He was aware of the track and he seemed pleased enough. <laughs> and then there's a then there's a quote from Mark himself. He was well into the internet before it all took off, wasn't he? Great man, such a laugh. We were on tour in Germany once and he came back to the hotel. It was just me and him. He said, let me hear the tape of the show tonight. And I said, oh, all right then. I put this tape on and it was the wrong side of the bloody tape. And he says, your material certainly reminds me of Can. He was fucking cracked. It was like the 13th floor elevators or something. (laughs) I got on very well with him. Oh, to be a fly on the wall. (laughs) To be a fly on the wall. I found a couple stories about MES meeting his few musical heroes over the years, and that's probably my favorite. Although there is a really great emotional moment in the band's 2005 documentary where he talks about meeting Bo Diddley and Bo Diddley telling him that The Fall are the only good rock band. Oh, that's fun. Bo Diddley also kind of a famously quite, you know, thorny person uh, to deal with. So that makes sense to me. So one more thing I want to say about this song and about Demo and Can. Um Back when he was first getting into Can, Maxton coined a saying, be the Damo Suzuki you wish to see in the world, which I think is pretty beautiful advice. I think it's good advice everyone should follow. I'm not sure if you can also say that for, say, be the Marky Smith you wish to see in the world. Oh, God, yeah. Which Marky Smith is the least destructive one? I'm not sure. (laughs) Although I'm 
so thankful we had him. I want to say goodbye to the annotated fall with one last really great exchange from the comments of this one. Uh, please go check out the annotated fall and the fall online forum. I, li- I really like them. Um, okay, user number one. The park alight with acid rain might be the park around Castle Norvinich, uh, which, is, which was home of Cannes' first recording studio. User number two. Uh, Schloss Norvinich seems to be built out of sandstone. Is there any indication that it or its surroundings were particularly affected by acid rain? (laughs) (laughs) Love these guys. Love them. And as we wave goodbye to them, we arrive at our last track, Two Encroachment Yarbles. It's fun when this groove shows back up, right? Yeah, this is a reprise of Mansion, but with words this time. Every day you have to die some Every day you have to cry some For the rumor All the good times are past and gone Found Wipe the tears from your eyes some And also they've kind of taken out a lot of the distortion Like the arrangement's a little bit less punchy It's almost like this album has sucked all of the fight out of <laughs> Out of Brix's guitar <laughs> I see it more as, whereas Mansion was the sound of an ancient evil waking up after a great period of rest, this is that ancient evil returning to its sleep. It's so it's so funny that on our last proper episode, we mentioned uh, Nadsat and A Clockwork Orange uh, to, as like a parallel for the for the weird uh, uh, language that you have to learn to understand De La Soul, and then this is an actual. Word yarbles is a is a clockwork orange word that means like testicles or yep. relics. And uh, I think it's interesting that it shows up here because even if you can understand Nadsat, there is still no guarantee that you can understand Marky e. Smith. Don't you think that when he sings "Every day you have to die some, every day you have to cry some," doesn't that feel oddly sentimental for for MES? A little bit, um, but apparently it was kind of borrowed from uh, "Every Day I Have to Cry Some," written by Arthur Alexander and recorded by Steve Alamo. Oh, so it might actually be cynical. It might actually be sarcastic. Maybe. Um, it was also, uh, it's been like adapted to songs by like a bunch of artists, apparently, including Dusty Springfield, Johnny Rivers, the Bee Gees, and even another Gorillaz family member, Lou Reed, who used lyrics uh, from it in his song Home of the Brave on his legendary Hearts album. I don't know that it's Mark, but I like to imagine that it's Mark who starts going, shh when the elements really start kicking in, like when the band starts to, to get going, it, it, I just imagine him going like, no, 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 bring it down. We're done. We're done with the record. Shh. Shh. <laughs> Interestingly enough, this wasn't on the copy of the record that I like listened to and had in my iTunes library for like the first couple, couple times I experienced this album. Oh, like, I always thought that this one ended with uh, I Am Damo Suzuki. I thought that was the big finale. And imagine my surprise when I learned that there was this kind of secret reprise of the intro track kind of that comes after it. Well, it's fitting for that the album should swallow its own tail, you know, or a Burroughs style, because it's sort of like the, there's a reason, there's a reason why dozens of people are sitting at their computers still picking these lyrics apart. And it's because it has that sort of, it's got an infinity vibe to it, right? There's an endlessness to it. And I think they're great lyrics to end with, you know? Every day you have to die some. Mark kind of strikes me as a guy who did kind of die every day. And then one day he died a little more than 
uh, the amount he died on the days before that. God bless him. I hope. I hope that. Uh, I hope that somewhere uh, he he considers this a fitting eulogy. Although he probably hates our fucking guts. Let's admit it. He probably hates our guts. Probably. Let's 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 wrap things up though with like a brief just discussion about the death of Marky Smith. You know, he died on. Uh, the 24th of January in 2018 at his home in Prestwich, England, after a long illness with lung and kidney cancer. His work ethic and output never declined, and he released a new album almost every year of his life. He was 60 years old. Yeah. He was supposed to have uh, more fall music coming soon. It was like one of the last public statements he made. It wouldn't have surprised me if he followed through on it, because he kept going right until he died. And I have a great quote from uh, Ben Pritchett the guitarist for the fall between 2001 and 2006 about uh, Marky Smith's passing and his funeral that I think answers uh, the question that you posed at the beginning of our program. Just about managed to escape with my life from Marky Smith's funeral. The ceremony itself was nice, touching in places. The wake, however, didn't last half an hour before bottles were thrown and drinks poured over people. Total disrespect. He'd have loved it. I kind of expected it, but hoped otherwise. And Steve Evitz, their bassist from 2000 to 2003, adds, I've got to say, it was just like a fall gig. I don't think he would have had it any other way. We love you, Mark. Let's, let's, let's hear from Brick. She said, uh, when I arrived in Manchester, a young American, he introduced me to pickled onions, pubs, and punk. He was my music mentor, my cultural anchor, and my first love. How many others can leave this life with such a singularity of vision? A believer to the end, Bricks. She really was. Totally. And uh, I would just like to close with a scene that I like to picture happening right on Marky Smith's deathbed, moments before he died, although it is from that interview I referenced before with Robert Chalmers. I picture Robert Chalmers leaning in to speak these final words to Marky Smith. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about the, his good traits and his bad traits. And this was like a duality that fascinated Robert Chalmers as well. So he asks... Is there anything in your past you feel you should apologize for? And MES answers, no. I've never molested a woman or hit anybody who didn't deserve it. Robert Chalmers asks, can you think of anything that went wrong through your fault? MES says, in music or life? Either. And MES answers, no. (laughs) And then he died. You know, it's fitting, Trevor, as we're recording this, it's the 3rd of March. Glitter Freeze turned eight years old today. How about that? I, I, I hope I hope he found what direction North was in the afterlife. Me too. <laughs> uh, what's been so cool about this season and, and the future seasons as we dive into the, the family uh, of this band is that I feel like it's going to imbue new meaning to these songs that these people are on, you know? Like, getting to know these characters on their own terms and on their own turf. When I go, when I double back to these albums, when I double back to a Glitter Freeze or, or a De La Soul Cut or whatever, I'm going to have that history and that understanding with me, and I'm very excited about that. Totally, I agree with you. But I think this is a case where it almost makes Glitter Freeze a more frustrating song because, man, can you imagine if we had gotten a full, proper Marky Smith appearance? on a gorilla's track rather than just a couple ad-libs. I mean, if he's going to get drunk and talk about Brexit at the Brit Awards, Damon ought to fucking dust off that hard drive and put out a proper of the, of the, the, the long crazy glitter freeze. Give us the full 
Marky Smith treatment. Damon, please. The uncut Marky Smith session. Wow, that, that was a fucking journey. We've come to the end of, of the fall on this podcast. Let's say for now. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, opposed to the idea of checking back in on the boys down the road in future seasons. Dylan, if we had my way, we would review the band's six-disc, seven-hour-long, complete Peel Sessions archive. So, yeah, we haven't heard the last of the fall on Hallelujah Monkeys. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. Uh, here's a, can I throw out a hashtag? Sure. <laughs> okay. I I don't know if we should post this episode on the Fall Online forums. Part of me wants to, part of me thinks. I think we should. I think we I think we I almost think we need to. Well, how about how about this? If you think we should post it on the Fall forums, get in touch with us on one of our social media platforms and do like a hashtag post it and then let's do something like like really <laughs> really Marky Smithy obfuscated and say like if you don't want us to do it, do like hashtag ghost dance. <laughs> if you want us to do it, do hashtag fallelujah monkeys. And if you don't want us to do it, hashtag ghost dance. BZFGT, you have an open invitation to come on to this podcast and tell us how we were wrong about all of this. <laughs> that would be a great sequel episode. <laughs> Definitely. So what are we doing next week, man? We got we got the season chugs right on and forward. Next week kind of almost feels like it's going to be the season finale, but it won't be because we've got that movie night in the future. But before we get to like, that, we're going to talk about the last record we're going to be discussing uh, this season. We finally got to our phase four collaborator. We're going to be talking about Big Fish Theory by Vince Staples. And I have a, I have a, a homework assignment for you. Okay. A question, a question that I want you to come back with an answer to when we reconvene for for next week's uh discussion of this Vince Staples album, okay? Ooh, I'm not going to have my I'm not going to have my fall annotators to help me out with this one. Here's my question. Is Vince Staples one of the greats? I'll consider it. We'll figure it out and we'll fi- we'll, we'll reconvene next time and we'll we'll give you the official word. Until then though, do you want to tell people where they can find us online? Yeah, they can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Amino. They can leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on soundcloud.com slash monkeys. They can send an email to monkeys at gmail.com. They can join our Discord at discord.me slash monkeys with a Z. You can leave us a phone message at 585-666-1233. And please not a better time to do it than now. Join the Patreonkeys Club at patreon.com slash howlyoumonkeys with a Z. Uh, for a dollar or more, you get access to the two Patreonkeys Club episodes that we've put out so far and all future ones. So come on, man. What are you waiting for? Let's do it. And of course, uh, required listening, Trevor in front of the show, Max and Stenstrom, have a, a fabulous podcast themselves called One Hit Wonders of the World. Uh, what are you guys talking about? One wonders of the world right now, Trevor. The last episode we released a couple days ago is about who let the dogs out by the Baja Men, and it's a classic. We really, we really, you you guys have really introduced us to some great characters over on that podcast. So that's definitely been my favorite part of the show, and I'm really looking forward to our next episode, which we should be recording pretty soon, where we talk about Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Oh, I can't wait! I can't wait! I hope you guys are doing the super long one because that's got oh, all the good I'm, stuff. I'm sure that's what we're going to be talking about. But uh, right right now, go check out that Baja Men episode for sure. Yeah, don't don't miss it. Even if you hate that song, you're going to love that episode. Spoiler alert, I hate that song. <laughs> I love the fall, though, and I've loved talking to you about them, Dylan. But uh, I think we're out of time for now. So until next week, I've been Trevor Ickrath. 
I've been Dylan Flynn. And uh, as good old MES might say, don't uh, get lost in heaven. Uh, Demo Suzuki. to Fallelujah Monkeys, the number one Marky Smith podcast in the world. I'm Trevor Ickrath. I'm Dylan Flynn, and we're tired of receiving your emails that we should have <laughs> called it Fallelujah Markies. We understand, but it's too late. We printed all the merch. It's over. We get it. What is happening exactly today, Trevor? We're doing something a little different from our normal uh, format, which is where we review uh, an album by our favorite band, The Fall, right? Of course. Well, you know, we, we started this podcast uh, shortly after the death of Marky e. Smith. You know, you and I met a long time ago on the annotated fall boards. My, new, my username was, was uh, Fuck Off Soppy. And mine was uh, Strife Knot. Yeah, uh, all those years ago. And, 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 and shortly after uh, MES's death, uh, you messaged me on Facebook saying, hey, why don't we do a fall podcast? Yeah, definitely. So that was a month ago. And because, you know, this is a fall podcast and we have the work ethic of good old MES, we've managed to blow through track by track reviews of all 60 fall albums in just... Uh, a brief month. I don't know about you, but I didn't break a sweat. So now you're thinking like, well, I know I'm thinking, what do we even do now, right? We're done? What do we do now? You know, we, we reviewed all the... We, we did an episode for every single Peel session. Right, and we... We reviewed the, the multitude of best of and B-side collections. So what's left? I mean, uh, you know... I, one thought would be we just stop it, but that doesn't feel like an MES move. No, we're going to keep going until we die, baby. Okay, great. So what's what's the game plan? Well, what I thought we would do is we would we would decide we would we would look at 
everything else that MES has done in his entire life, starting with uh, brief appearances he's made on songs by other artists. Sure, uh, I'm trying to remember any of them. What are we doing today? Today, we're going to be discussing his appearance on a track by a, a band called Gorillas called Glitter Freeze. Uh, the anime thing, right? Right. right. The anime thing. So what am I going to have to, I'm going to have to go to some kind of a weird convention and there's going to be people dressed with the blue hair and big swords on their backs. What is Crawl through deviant art. Yeah. But, but I thought, you know, that, that all sounds horrible. So instead of doing any of that, we decided to do what we're best at, review a fall album. Oh, thank God. Finally. But from the perspective of a of an outsider, of a Gorillaz fan. Oh, so we're doing this in character. Yes, because from what I understand, the in, in my research of Gorillaz, they I've I I spent some time like on their fan boards and in Discords and on the subreddit. And they have like kind of a fan base almost like the fall does. It's it's the the people there aren't quite as you know smart or witty or funny or attractive, but sure, they try. Sure. They try, you know. Uh, and and so I thought, like you know, D- Dylan, there's an alternate universe where you and I met on a gorillas board, and then decided to do a gorillas podcast, uh, review all their albums, and then like start going into their collaborators, and eventually get to Marky Smith, and then have to talk about the fall. Can you imagine a couple of Gorillaz fans talking about the fall? Now, I think MES would would appreciate this these several layers of irony we're going to be implementing here cuz what we're doing, we're going to pretend that we're like seasons into this other podcast. I'm dead. This is a great idea. We're doing this. Right. We we've, t- we've talked about we've talked about Demon Days, uh Plastic Beach. I- I'm just going through their Wikipedia. Dylan, these these guys recorded an album called The Fall. Another another uh, shameless scam artist ripping <laughs> off dear old MES. But like fucking pavement. Let me set aside my my palpable disdain for these silly cartoon characters. This Joe's this modern day Josie and the Pussycats, and and allow myself to to put on the the costume of a of an adult cartoon character fan who met his other cartoon character fan on some sort of web forum where we where we probably post sexually suggestive images of these cartoon characters. And fine. I'm down. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do it for this episode and this episode only, and then we're going back to the wheelhouse. That's what we do. Hey, uh, uh, have you updated your um, uh, MES Brick Smith fan fiction lately? Uh, no. I. What was that called the, again? It, it was called Bricks by Bricks. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I get emotional when I think about it. It was, it was called Bricks by Bricks uh, inside the fallen walls. Okay. Okay, let's – we'll do a countdown into – let's do a countdown to three. And then for, we can't break character after that. We have to be these these – Parallel versions of ourselves, okay? I'll say three, two, one, bombast, and then we'll play the gorilla <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, okay, that's perfect. We'll do that, yeah. Two, two one, bombast. bombast. <laughs>